Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Are all interviews done with a live audience? No. Okay. I didn't know this. Yes. Okay. So given that, I think that takes, you know, adds a, a stress factor to the, to, the, <laughs> no to the interviewer. On both sides. I yeah, yeah, sure. Well, y'all are seasoned. I'm not seasoned at being interviewed. That's Anita Jessing-Honey reflecting on her first interview in front of a live audience. And if that doesn't sound terrifying enough, Anita had to deal with three different interview styles, three different settings, and three very different sets of questions. Oh, and there was a countdown clock. I'm Shamita Basu, and this is Work It, the podcast, a compilation of the best moments from the live event. And this one is a doozy. Here's Amanda Aronchik of Only Human, Melissa Block of NPR, and Wendy Zuckerman of Science Versus, questioning restaurant owner Anita Jessing-Honey, all in their own unique ways. The whole thing was run like a game show, hosted by Radiolab's Molly Webster. So Anita comes to us uh, from Texas. You can sit down. You don't have to stand. Um, Anita comes to us from Texas. She is a James Beard winning chef. Is that right? Okay, good. Good so far. She has two restaurants in Texas. This is like live fact-checking. No, all these things are right. And she's about to open in 10 days. Is that right? In a couple of weeks. In a couple of weeks. Uh, a giant restaurant in, Tex- in, in New York, just up the road. So you yes. all can go. Um, Pondicherry. She said she's she's gonna she's gonna do Texan in New York, and she's yeah. not holding back. So you should all go. <laughs> uh, so our first interviewer is the host of Science Versus, and we all know Gimlet just picked up this show. So it's gonna be Wendy Zuckerman, fresh from Australia. <laughs> and this is uh, Wendy's first public appearance since moving here. So uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Why don't we start with your, your childhood? Okay. Seems like a good place to start. Okay. Tell me about the first time that you realised that your mum was getting sick and you would have to start cooking for the family. Gosh, you've read up about me, haven't you? <laughs> I was 13 then. And my mum was sick. She hurt her back and she was bedridden for about a year. And I had to, well, my dad tried to cook, but he was disastrous. So I'm like, okay, let me try. And I got into the kitchen and I started to cook and it, it was fun. It was easy. And yeah, that was my first time. Was it, was it nerve wracking cooking for your dad? Not at all. No, not, it was the easiest thing. It was fun. I had, I mean, foods just come so easy to me. I enjoy it so much that it's never, never boring. I never cook the same thing twice. Almost never. Do you remember, was there a fascination with it early on? Something you picked up a spice and thought, this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was born and raised in India, so to me, Indian food was all I knew. And in those days, going out to eat in restaurants was unheard of. But when we did go, we'd go to eat at these really heavy, oily, delicious, you know, very North Indian kind of places. And I, to me, that was the way Indian food I thought should be. So I tried to make that at home. And I was, of course, my dad was like, a grocery bill is twice as high, got to get you out of the kitchen, back into school. So I didn't, I mean, I, I did a little, for about a year I was in charge of the kitchen, but I wasn't only cooking. We had a couple of cooks at home that were helping me, and it was, it was just my first journey into food where I learned that I can do, and this is just fun, it comes easy to me. And then you moved to North America. You started in yeah. Canada. Right. How was it, because 
food and, and in general is kind of intrinsically entwined with race and sometimes racism. And you had this love for Indian cuisine. You came in the, in the 90s, was it? How was it right. cooking Indian food for North Americans? Well, at that time I didn't. I was at home. I had, you know, I was married. I wasn't looking. Opening a restaurant was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. And I, you know, I didn't know how badly Indian food was represented in North America till then. I'd go out to eat and it was like, you know, uh, buffet lines and... I knew, and you know, with eating out and traveling as much as I did, I'd go back and forth from India and stop in Europe a lot. I knew that Indian food had more to it than people had tried. So I think I spent my many years in Canada just experimenting. I'm wildly experimental. I have no fear in the kitchen. I'll cook anything, everything that I've made some really bad food. And, and I arrived at Tell some... Tell me about a bad one. Oh, my God, I made these cucumber koftas ones, and they were like, just, you couldn't eat them. They were, I never knew you can't grate a cucumber, make this, like a, like a uh, kind of like a meatball, but with cucumber, and they were terrible. They were inedible, they smelled bad, and, and nobody could eat them, you know? But it's okay, I tried to serve them too. To my husband and my kids, it's the way I did everything, <laughs> so yeah. It was just, it was fun though, but you know, it's, the beauty about food is that you do it once, and if it's not good, you just don't do it again. So it's not like, um, other things where you, and once you, you, if you just keep learning from those, it doesn't seem that painful. It's just you paint a, a very rosy picture of um, your of your time here. Yeah, I do, don't I? And you know, I it it's not all rosy. I've I'm I have no fear of cooking, obviously, and creating new things. But I uh, I wasn't happy with the way Indian food was looked at, and that was, I think, my biggest problem. And I it irritated me as to how. People would expect, when I took them out for Indian food, you know, my Ameri I was working, I was working as a microbiologist at the time, and I would take my doctors or our group out, and we would eat, and they, they always felt that this is it. And, you know, India, in, India is an extremely diverse country. The regional diversities of Indian food are, like, mind-blowing. I mean, they're like, to me, Italian is the closest thing it comes to. So when all you see is, you know, five things that you know of Indian food, it kind of began to sow a seed in my brain that, okay, maybe I should do something with food over time. So that's kind of where it all started. You described when you opened your second restaurant, you, you had once said, I'm not fighting a battle and I'm not trying to prove anything. Does that mean when you started your first restaurant, you were, there was a battle, you were yeah, trying to prove something? Yeah, maybe. And I, and I don't know if what, it was, if it was a conscious... It was, I was trying to prove that Indian food has a place up there with any other cuisine. I did not want to be called an ethnic chef. It, it irritated me when all ethnic food was bunched up into, well, it's, you know, it was a different category. Like there was Italian and um, French and the new American, which was Italian and French and some hot dogs and hamburgers. <laughs> and then it was really, and you know, then, okay, so Spanish cuisine became part of that, that genre of like, you know, elite food. And it irritated me that Indian food never, nobody seemed to get the fact that there is a, you know, there's a thousands of years of uh, knowledge of Indian food. There is, there is more history to Indian cuisine than I think any culture in the world. And people have thought about how to eat 10,000 years ago in India. It's, they didn't just think about it, you know, 100 years ago. So, and not that I knew a lot about that. I knew there was a lot of depth to Indian food, and I began to explore that. So I think... Why, you, do, you, why do you think Indian food doesn't uh, hit up the elite? I think it's just the way it was presented. I don't think it was anybody's fault, and no one tried to do it that way. It was, 
it was the kind of people that were cooking for Indian restaurants. It was, you know, mostly males from um, a certain part of India. So, uh, and it ended up becoming this like North Indian amalgamation of Indian food. I mean, you saw some South Indian food, but then it was like three South Indian things that people, they knew what dosa was. And that was the extent of what they knew about, knew about North India, uh, South Indian food. And how are we going today? How do you think? It's a whole lot better. Oh, my God. It's amazing now. I think Indian food is hitting its stride if it hasn't already, and I want to be on the cusp of that. <laughs> um, now, going into a... Um, I guess when you talk about opening a restaurant, you're still quite rosy about it, but your restaurants fell over a few times. You had some trouble with staff. Was this... Um, tell, me mean, about, tell me about this. It's always staffing or people... I think the biggest thing in life is relationships, so... It, I learned that early in my days at my first restaurant, that if I was uh, going to build a restaurant with people that wanted to be there, I, wanted, I had to you know, learn how to, how to work with people. And I wasn't the most social person then. So I've learned to, to, I've learned to navigate my own emotions and what I'm looking for from people and communicate. I still work at it. It's, it's a daily, daily progress. So, I mean, I don't think we ever had a follower. We never really had... Uh, Every restaurant goes through ups and downs. My first restaurant is, we're going to be 15 years old next month. Uh, the second one, Pondicherry in Houston, was five years in March. So we've survived all the you know, ups and downs of the economy and you know, what Texas has gone through and what the U.S. has gone through. So we opened Indica actually two months before 9-11 happened. Mm. Yeah, it opened in, on July 17th of 2001. So tell me about that. How did you feel when the when the towers fell? You know, I, I mean, I think we all know where we were when that happened, right? So I remember it was a Tuesday morning and I came out of the kitchen and one of my cooks says to me that, you know what just happened, right? I'm like, what? He's like, some towers went on. I'm like, you, you, you're kidding. Like, this is... And he said, no, the World, Tower, World Trade Towers right. went down. Well, what a place. <laughs> I just got the sign that I had to stand. Okay. That was one of the more uncomfortable moments that I've ever lived through. Uh, so give him a round of applause. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Shake that off for a... <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so thank you, Wendy. Give Wendy a round of applause for getting, being our first interviewer. So next up, uh, we're going to have... Uh, you don't have to come out yet because I know they're going to set up the stage. But uh, Amanda Aronchek from WNYC Studios Only Human. And so the setup that they're going to do behind me is essentially so Amanda and Anita can't see each other. So this is like, um, how many of you, how often do you guys do interviews in person? Like, I, ne- I mean, even at Radio Lab. We do so many interviews where you're not actually staring at the person, so I get really used to being in my own space. So actually having to deal with somebody in person makes me uncomfortable in this, in this way that you think, like, oh, I've talked to a lot of people, it shouldn't weird me out. But suddenly there's all these, like, your arms and elbows and you're sitting really close to each other, as we just saw on the, on the love seat. And so this is... Um, this, this will prevent all of that from happening. This will mimic what happens in the studio or what you guys are doing um, like over, over the phone, if that makes sense. Are we almost? Yeah, they're doing so good. This is, I could use this in my apartment, actually. That would be 
That would be nice. If, like roommates, you just put it in. Okay. Uh, so we'll bring out onto the stage um, Amanda Aronchek. So Amanda has reported for everybody from like the BBC to WNYC to NPR. She teaches journalism at the City University of New York. And she just got back from a reporting trip this morning. So Amanda and Anita, please come to the stage. supposed to see each other. She's like a mystery guest. Okay. Hello? Can you guys hear me out there? Okay. Anita, can I hear you for a second? Sure. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what you had for breakfast? Sure. Uh, Scrambled eggs. Scrambled eggs? Did you make them yourself? Of course. How could you ask me that? I know. Well, I thought perhaps you had like a team of chefs that you employed that like could make you scrambled eggs. No, no. I haven't opened the restaurant yet. I'm still living out of an apartment and a kitchen that fits just about me. That's it. it. So it's just you, not with your kids, just you on your own here. Yeah, yeah. No, my husband is here and yeah, but I cooked breakfast this morning with scrambled eggs and um, yeah, it was delicious and some chai. Okay. Very good. Cooked by yourself. All right. The... um, uh, do you mind opening the bag that I've handed you? Of course. Okay. <laughs> okay. Play-Doh. Play-Doh. Now, I tried to get a look at your fingernails before we walked out here. You have sh- reasonably short fingernails, right? Like right. Play-Doh's like not your I worst do, nightmare. I do, I do, yes. Yes. As a chef, I would imagine that you'd keep your nails fairly short. Would you do? I do, yes. Okay. Did you um, feel free to open the Play-Doh? Do not feel like you have to play with it. Okay. But I just want it in your hands. Okay. So you can just hold it. You can cradle it. Okay. Did you play with Play-Doh as a kid? No. No. I feel like there's a bit of a love-hate thing with Play-Doh, where sometimes like it either smells really great to you or it smells sort of disgusting. Do, do you have any... Can you smell it? Sure. It smells like chemical. Does it? It doesn't... Because sometimes Play-Doh... Like Play-Doh, there is like lots of flour and stuff. You can yeah, make I mean, Play-Doh it's, naturally. It's, it's fake floral, which to me is chemical. Do you have a good sense of smell? Yes, I do. So can you tell me a little bit more about what you think is in that Play-Doh? Now you have me confused. (laughs) So, you know, um, it's actually not Play-Doh. Is it Play-Doh? I don't know. It could be like a a drugstore knockoff, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I... I'd have to try it. Maybe it's not Play-Doh. Maybe what? Maybe it's not Play-Doh. Oh, I interesting. Know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, okay. I don't have the Play-Doh secret recipe, so I can't tell you for sure. Okay. So you didn't play with Play-Doh as a kid, but what, I, kind, of, what kind of toys did you grow up with? Um, you know, I don't know if I grew up with toys. Did I grow up with toys? I can't remember. Um, what kind of toys did I grow up with? Probably a tricycle when I was older, um, and I don't remember playing with toys as you would in America. I grew up in India, and Play-Doh doesn't exist there, so at least it didn't when I was growing up. So I don't know if I've ever played with the toys, you know, with the, the kind of toys you have here. The, the I did not ever see Lego till I came to the U.S. I never saw um, many of the toys, you know, the 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 little cars and stuff. So I grew up playing with little kids more than with toys. I guess that's the answer. I had two older brothers, and I ended up playing with them more than I did with toys. Now, my understanding is that you 
had to learn to cook pretty early and that you took on a bunch of responsibilities in your family. Is that right? Yes, for a short time. For a short time. And how come? Uh, my mom was sick and I decided to jump into the kitchen and do something because my dad was trying to cook and it was not working out. So, It was your decision though? Yes, purely mine. So you said, Dad, this is so bad, you have yes. to let me cook for you? Yes, yes. But how, So how old were you? I was 13. Can I, can I ask what your mother was, how, what she was sick with? Yeah, she had, um, uh, she had an accident and she hurt her back. So she was bedridden for about a year. Okay. And that, I, I assume that must have been hard on the family. Yes, it was. So you decide to take over the cooking responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Do you have any clue what you're doing? Nope. No. No. And is but anyone had, guiding you? Uh, well, we had, you know, in India you have people that help you. So we had a couple of cooks in the house or more like cooks that would come in and do all the prepping for my mother who would cook. So we had, I had some support with that and I used to watch my mother cook. So I, it wasn't entirely new to me, you know, cooking. So I had been watching, sitting on the kitchen perch and, you know, eating out and eating out a little bit, but definitely a lot of watching. So I decided to just jump in and do something. Do you remember your first giant disaster? Uh, at that time, no, because I was being guided by those two, you know, cooks there a little bit. They would, I would ask them, how do you make this? How do you make the other? We would make it together. So I had some guidance. So I didn't have disasters. My disasters came later when I was cooking, you know, in the U.S. In, in, in India, cooking was easy because I always had people guiding me. So what was your giant uh, disaster that you had when you were over here? Um, well, I'll mention one that I haven't mentioned yet. Let me see. Okay, within about three months of arriving in Canada, I, I ate a cheesecake, and I thought, oh, I can make a cheesecake. So I made a cheesecake, and we had this couple over, and I didn't, I had never made even a cake at the time. I don't think I'd ever even made a cake, but I'd certainly never made a cheesecake. So I make a cheesecake, and I have it all chilled, it's ready, and I bring it to the table after, or to the coffee table after we all had our dinner. You had a recipe, though, right? uh, Yeah, yeah, I did have a recipe, yes, of course. And I slice it, and the whole thing turns into soup. It, like, completely, it's everywhere. And I didn't realize that, you know, with a cheesecake, you have to wait for it to uh, set, and I just didn't, didn't quite know that. So we had soup on the, on the carpet, on the floor. So that was, and my friend that was there still teases me about it. So yeah, that was, that was pretty disastrous. Were you, was everyone very polite and did try to in fact consume? Oh no, they laughed and made fun of me the whole time. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get the sense, I don't know that much about you, but I've read a little bit. I get the sense that you tend to like just jump in. To yes, I do. Correct? I do, which is why I'm here in New York. So yes, I do jump in. I mean, I've learned to be a little bit more calculated, but yes. Um, I mean, at some point, you can only plan and think so much, so you have to just do it. You, you understand how, uh, that the failure rate for restaurants in New York is like more than half of restaurants fail within a year. Yes. And, you know, actually, at the time that I opened my first restaurant, Indica in Houston, I was told that 95% of restaurants opened by first-timers fail. And then out of that... Uh, maybe it was 98% of restaurants opened by women that have never done it before failed. So I had a 2% uh, ratio of succeeding. So, so what makes you think that you're going to pull this off in New York? I know I'm going to because my food... Because, because I think Indian food is fabulous and I've, I think it's time for Indian food to be... I mean, I think the city is... I love the city, so yeah, it's, it's going to be great. I have no doubt. <laughs> What is the one thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night? 
scared about this restaurant? Uh, scared about the restaurant? Well, it's probably logistics more than anything else. It's, you know, making sure that we can staff it right and run it and no one's going to, you know, run in there with a gun and try to kill someone or something insane would happen. It's really, it's those tiny little chances and that doesn't wake me up at night. I'm, uh, I have, I mean, I have faith that this is going to be a great adventure and uh, we are in the right place. I'm where I need to be in life, so... Anita, thank you so much. We all look forward to going to eat there. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank you, Amanda. That was fun. Um, so, can we see what's been happening in a if flash? What's been happening back there with your with your? Oh, we haven't checked in in a while. Do we see it? They're, they're coming. Don't worry. Okay. Okay, the interview. What's that? Do we, do, no, do we have any images? Oh, sure. Do we, uh, they have to... Or they just need to pop up? That, yeah, I don't, no? I don't know if the camera's selected. Are we having, are we having camera? It'll just be like, we'll just cut, we're just going to cut. Oh, there we go. Okay, so here's tips for getting the guest. Celebrity versus somebody with experience and authority. And here we have what's good for the guest, what's kind of gift, be succinct, want to, okay, get specific and to the point. Most time is spent postponing guests. This is, let's see if I can get these. Let the interview be real. How social media makes it easier to book. Yes, you can find people. Balance between kindly persistence versus stalking. (laughs) Not personal, be the bigger person. This person's so much bigger, even if the guest is a jerk. Um, I, I wrote that part in. Um, now, do you have the cheesecake theme? Be kind, write a good letter, and bring a cheese, send a cheesecake afterwards. Uh, publicist versus direct. Be clear that you need access. Don't make promises. You know, take your time. Just say you're going in a different direction. Um, the publicity databases, either get on or get off, whatever you want to do. <laughs> they were split down the middle on that yeah, one, yeah. yeah. And then uh, keep the questions in your hat behind you. <laughs> Don't give them in advance. Send bullet points instead. Um, guest introduction should be in advance. And then the interview doesn't end when it ends. Follow up with thanks. Oh, so nice. that's that Nicely one. Nicely done, Flash. Woo! And so far we have Wendy's. Yeah. Oh, oh. oh, do you want to? Oh, yeah, you're oh, cool. Do, we have the game show where she is intrepidly opening up a restaurant with buildings in New York being served. Um, uh, I noticed Childhood Canada, cucumber meatballs, and then just not happy with how Indian food is. And so I was trying to draw what would be more interesting forms of Indian food because it's kind of gloppy, but it has a shape. Um, <laughs> and then here's Amanda with her wall. And asking the questions, oh, and the cool. questions are answered on the other side, from scrambled eggs to Play-Doh smelling chemical to starting to cook early. And then here comes the cheesecake, which is, once again, this is the disaster form, not the thank you form, when it turns into soup. And uh, she's jumping in, even though there's a 2% chance of succeeding. New York City is ready for Indian food. We are ready. <laughs> All right, so our, we are at our final interview setup, and so that is going to be hosted and interviewed by NPR's Melissa Block. 
So she started as an editorial assistant in 1985, and now she's a special correspondent. And many of you know her as the host for All Things Considered. So I think she has done a lot of interviews, and she's going to show off her skills here. So give it up for Melissa and Anita. Hi. How are you? Good. It's nice to meet you. Same here. Am I saying your last name right? Jaisinghani? Yes. Say it for me. Jaisinghani. Jaisinghani. Yeah. Jaisinghani. Okay. I'm Melissa with NPR and i um, looking forward to talking to you. Um, tell me about your first food memory. How far back does it go? First food memory. Yeah. Do you have one? Uh, not one that jumps up. But probably breakfast at home with my parents. And so, describe breakfast. What would that uh, be? It was warm milk with bone vita, which is this powder you put into milk. It's delicious. Um, and probably uh, a paratha, which is flatbread, and uh, some pickle and some yogurt. That's my first, I would imagine that as being my first food memory. It was our, a common breakfast in the mornings. Yeah. So. But you're not, it's not like you think back to childhood and there's this one, you don't yeah. have like Proust's medal and it's bringing up some childhood no, memory for you. No, not, not particularly, no. Yeah. yeah. Pickle in the morning. Yes. Yeah? Yeah, and Indian pickles are very different from pickles here. Is it spicy? So, yes, it's spicy and it's sweet and sour and, um, yeah, very complex. And breakfast is, is still important for you? Yes, yes. And, you know, people think of Indian breakfast as, well, what do you eat for breakfast? And when we opened Pondicherry five years ago, people would, our breakfast uh, was dead. People would not come in just expecting, not knowing what to expect, I think. And we didn't want to serve bacon. And so we had, you know, a lot of people coming in and leaving because they could not recognize anything on the yeah, menu. Yeah. So it took some time. But now breakfast is one of our biggest meals and we have this regular crowd that comes in you know several times a week and it's just great and it's an you, important meal yeah so. it is an important yeah meal. and it's a family meal too. it is a family meal true although maybe not at the restaurant i don't know you know the reason i did breakfast was that i to me it's a it's a meal that people don't pay enough attention to mm. uh it's like a grab and go you know a bagel right. and a coffee right. and to me that's not breakfast especially so. in new york right? especially <laughs> in new york yeah so we're not gonna be doing bagels in new york <laughs> <laughs> so you don't remember necessarily a first food memory but what about when you first learned to cook when you first figured out that that was something you like to do yeah i mean i learned how to make really good sindhi food my mom is from a pro or my parents are from a province that is actually now in pakistan it's called sindh mm -hmm. it's um not so it was not the kind of food that was local. I grew up in a province called Gujarat, which is um, uh, a vegetarian-eating province of India. It's in the western part of India. And it wasn't what people ate outside of our home, but what we ate at home was so different from what others ate that it was my favorite food that to cook and to eat. It was what my mother would cook. Uh -huh. so, and she was a great cook. Yeah. So, so how would she teach you? Um, I would just sit perch up on the kitchen counter and just watch her. Really? Yeah, that's... She was... Our family was very obsessed with food, like I think most families are. But ours was just... It was to a new level. So, yeah. Everything... And, you know, in India, it wasn't... You don't have to be a foodie to eat uh, real food. It was the only way we had it. There was no... Uh, 
restaurants that were serving, you know, fast food. I had never eaten something out of a bag huh. in my life huh. that I remember in India ever. I mean, it, it just never, nothing came out of a, out of, I mean, a, a prepackaged bag. Yeah. It just didn't so it exist. Was, it was all made. It was all made from scratch. Yeah. Even, I feel like I sound like it came from another world, but we would buy like whole, you know, whole wheat kernels in a big um, drum and there would be a local mill at, you know, every... A few blocks, there was a mill, and my mother would take that over and get it milled, and then that would be the flour we would use to make our bread. So, huh. Huh. so how how old would you have been when you were perching on that on that counter washing? Uh, in my, I was, I think I was in the kitchen as soon as I was tall enough to be in there. Yeah. So, but you know, in India, cooking is considered like a career that's for. It's not. It wasn't a career of choice, and my parents were, you know, a professional family, and they're like. You're not going to cook for a living. That's <laughs> not going to happen. So uh, they encouraged me to have fun in the kitchen. But mm. outside of that, it was not going to be a career choice. So I just, to me, I never thought I would cook for a living. Right. That didn't even occur to me. That it was just out of pure interest that I did it. Yeah. And it was, they were opposed to that because it felt like a step backward. You know, yeah. I don't know if it was a step backward. I said it just wasn't something that not only women didn't do, but just, you know, People from families that, you know, went to colleges just didn't do that. And I probably could have fought my way into it, but I didn't. So mm. I ended up just learning to cook uh, on my own. And, you know, my parents, well, you know, I was very spoiled. I was, you know, raised with lots of love. So it wasn't that they told me, they didn't tell me to yeah. cook. It, they just said, okay, well, go and, you know, and my brothers, I had two older brothers. They loved what I cooked because I would throw in all the nuts and the oils and I'd make really tasty, you know, uh, rich food. And yeah. they would tell my mom, like, let her, let her cook. She's really good. <laughs> and my dad was like, well, your, our grocery bill is twice as high, you know. <laughs> so, but it was, it was just a lot of fun. And I've always enjoyed cooking, so. So you went to school, though, for microbiology. Yes. Yeah. Do you find that you end up using some of your science background as you cook? I mean, does it filter in in some way? You know, I thought about that as I was driving here or coming to to this show, and you thought I'd be asking you that. Yeah, I thought someone would ask me that because I've been asked that before, and I feel like I no no, but I feel like I feel like as far as a um, I don't know, it's it's more of a subconsciously where I feel like it helps, but. I'm not a chemist or a scientist. I think I did microbiology because my parents thought that was a respectable career. And, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't because they thought I was, you know, some genius microbiologist. It was just because the college was in the town. They didn't want me to leave. Because I did want to go to, there, there is only one college for food in India. It's in Mumbai. And my, I told them, I said, can I go and learn how to cook there? They're like, mm. no, nope, it's not going to no, happen. So, because I'd have to leave town and that they, they, they were just nervous about letting me mm. leave, leave the city. So I'm in the city that I grew up in and it's a college in the city. So I became a microbiologist or I'd studied microbiology because it was the choice at the time. Yeah. So, and I think it certainly has helped me. Uh, it Baking came easily, easily to me because huh. of that. Huh. Oh. On the molecular level or something's going on, you think? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, to me, food is just its something that I've not really played with. Molecular level, no. no. Um, I just think the best food is what you make with your hands and with your with the right, right emotions and, right. you know, heartfelt food. So, Do you dream of food? Absolutely. You do? All the time. Give me a food dream. Oh, my gosh. I think I have food dreams every night. So I don't know where to start. <laughs> How about a food nightmare? 
I've had food nightmares too because I have served people raw chicken, you know, once oh. and I Wait, I had in your dream? No, 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 no in real. Oh, no. This was before I opened the restaurants oh, actually. No. So I uh but it was like just barely raw, you know, but it was raw. So <laughs> those are my, my nightmares. What's, but I haven't, I haven't had that. What uh, happens in the green space stays in the green space. Yes, right? no. yes. It's okay. I mean, I think as a chef, a, any chef would relate to me with having, you know, served food that wasn't quite what they wanted. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's part of being in this, in this world. Well, Anita Jaisingani, thank you so much. You're welcome. It's nice to talk to you. Same here. Hey, Shamita again. At this point, everybody who took part in that little interview game, they're coming back onto the stage to talk through the process and their really different interview styles. And it's moderated by WNYC's Emily Botin. Uh, so I'm Emily Botin from WNYC. And again, I just I saw Kari Pitkin, and she was just asking me what this workshop, and she says, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> so again, I do think we should uh, thank all of our guests and Anita, who, who was sort of put through a ringer by having three different interviews. And I know some of the, com- some of the topics that came up we will discuss. Um, we're going to talk amongst ourselves, but then also there'll be time for more questions. Um, and I also, you guys should feel free to interrupt each other and stuff. But I, I heard some of the things, and I, I noticed that uh, people talked about where you started. How much did you guys think about where you were going to start? Uh, a lot, I think. I mean, I think that's so key to getting a conversation off on the right foot and I mean, as you could tell with Anita, maybe it didn't necessarily generate a specific thing, but maybe it established a little bit of a connection and made you think a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have no idea. Where did you start? Oh, we don't my, know. my first I, question was, what's, what's your first food memory? It was surprisingly similar. Uh-huh. You both went to childhood and you went to food memory, uh-huh. but yeah. it was considering, because they didn't hear each other's interviews. Right. They weren't allowed to. What was yours? What was my question? Yeah. I think I gave you the Play-Doh. What happened to it, by the way? <laughs> I don't know. But don't I, know? Think, I think I left it here, or okay. someone took someone it took to it. the back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we talked about Play-Doh. Yes. And then we, as a, and we got into childhood. Yes. Yeah. yes. And you know, it's funny that I didn't have a... I'm not thinking back about my first food memory. I just think that there are so many that it yeah. just... Yeah. There isn't one. So one when one. Melissa, you said you think a lot about the first question. <laughs> Is it? Do you think in terms of the answer you're going to get, or in terms of setting the guest like is it a throwaway question or is it well a- it kind of, I guess it depends right so if I had had more than eight minutes probably the first question would not have been that it would have been how's your day what have you been doing you know that sort of let's try to get to know each other a little bit but in the course of this conversation or if you're thinking about where an interview actually starts I'm thinking about I guess I'm thinking about the arc I'm thinking about where is it starting and where is it going and you heard that I was focused pretty specifically I wasn't getting into her business experience. I wasn't getting into her family. I was focusing on food. So I was thinking, and I like talking to people about their first memories of things. I think they can often be really evocative. I like the image of you sitting on that counter. I mean, that will, that will stay with me. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was such a strong beginning as well. It was so, like, the story with your mother. Like, it's such, and it, like, set the tone for the rest. Like, if we choose that arc, that narrative right, right, for your right. life, right. um, yeah. it would be, that could be a, a really important beginning yeah so it's an, did anyone think about starting somewhere else i mean did you no, mm. no. and what's that we 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 altered no. you know we, we kept alternating the way you were sitting there we had the we had the couch we had the what's your ideal way to do an interview not perched on a stool <laughs> like we are right now what do you prefer uh, this is terrible 
Um, I think side by side is really nice. Like, I mean, depending on the guest. Like, sometimes, <laughs> particularly if you're interviewing an old white man, that can be a little troublesome, um, unfortunately. Um, I, think, I think you do have to be careful because you want to be, like, smiley and friendly and you want to get things out of them. Um, and if people don't understand where you're coming from, yeah, I think that can be troublesome. But I think most of the time it's really nice to be face-to-face and close. Do you prefer to use your own equipment? Like, do you prefer to... Like, uh, I, like, do you, do you yes, record? Yes, I, I, I like to hold the mic. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Can I ask, like, Anita, what felt most comfortable? Yeah, so is, is, are all interviews done with a live audience? No. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know this. Yes. Okay. So given that, I think that takes, you know, adds a, a stress factor to the, to the, <laughs> no to the interviewer. On both sides. I yeah, yeah, sure. Well, y'all are seasoned. I'm not seasoned at being interviewed. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't like talk for a living and I don't, I don't. So for me, it was, and I think it came, so I was only asked to come a few days ago and it was like, what the hell? Let me just say yes, you know? So you're not busy. You're not doing anything. Well, today I was, and we have the health inspector at the restaurant this afternoon. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to walk away from this. So, (laughs) so I heard someone say, uh, you know, when we were just backstage, that Amanda's where you couldn't see, there was definitely a less of a connection, hmm. which I thought was interesting. But there was also something interesting that happened during the interview, too. And I just want to look back at where, where you said, you said, what makes you think you can do this? Do you remember that hmm. at the end of And it actually got quite a feisty response. response. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wonder, there's something about a connection with the interviewer, but there's also what's the content you're, you're getting. Do you guys have a sense of, was there a moment that you liked in each of your interviews? I mean, what would be that moment? Do you... That sounds like a great moment. What an interesting question, too. It was a good moment, and what happened, too, is the crowd was like, yeah! <laughs> and I should have just been like and seen, and I didn't. So I felt like I blew that. I blew no, the end no. a little. No, not oh, at thanks all. God. You were great. So yeah, nice. you were fine. Uh, so I was sad about that, but that moment of pushing you. Yeah, yeah. Felt... No, and you know, it's funny how I think as women we are so we are much more cautious and much more um, we prepare a little harder. I think, and this is a very biased comment, obviously. So. I think if you had asked me this 15 years ago, I would have said, well, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to do my best. And I've been in the business 15 years. So I'm like, you know, I know the city really well. I've been coming here at least twice a year, if not more than that, for the last 20 plus years. So I know the city. I know what people eat. It's only food. It's not rocket science. I've been in the business. I can do it. So and I didn't give as... But I wasn't expecting that question. So to me, it, my instant response was, yes, I can do it, you know, which shows that I have a lot more confidence now than I did mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15 years ago. So I was excited about that question, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's something about interviewing. It's not just about making the guest comfortable, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that it, it's, it was rare. I don't think in our interview, I don't think I, ever, I asked you a question that you, you weren't expecting. I think you were kind of on script maybe a little bit for most of our interviews. <laughs> I mean, I had no questions to think about. I just thought about the interview, and I'm... Uh, no, I mean, I... It, it was all spontaneous. I don't think I thought back about any of this. I didn't make any notes. I have no... It was all just an intuitive... I think your questions were exciting to me, and I love what I'm about to do or what I do. So I, I do love the business, and I do love being in it, and I love food, and I'm excited to do what I'm about to do, so... It's all good. 
How much is your goal looking for like some surprise? A lot. Yeah. A lot, but depending on whom you're talking to. But, I mean, so many people have done so many interviews all the time, and maybe you've looked through a packet of, like, we had, you know, 50 pages of stuff about Anita that she said before. So you're thinking, okay, what maybe hasn't she talked about? What, what haven't I seen in these clips? And a lot of times you'll see people say almost verbatim the same thing over and over again. Not you. But, um, so you're trying to get beyond that, right? And you're trying to find something, just like in any conversation, something that you haven't heard before, something that tells you something new about somebody. And how much are you editing while you're listening? Mm-hmm. Okay. Me? Yeah. Personally, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did so, you talk? Did it successfully, like... So sure, it really arced. I was getting to an arc, but then we ran out of time. Did it feel um, like an arc? A very minor arc. <laughs> They're like very small arc. <laughs> Melissa, you were the only one who brought up microbiology. Yeah. You didn't bring it up. I didn't bring it up. I didn't feel like it was a passion for you because you ultimately went into cooking. Yeah, totally. But it was <laughs> no. It was interesting. People ask me that all the time, and you know, and I'm like. It's like a whatever issue, you know, it's like, it's the past, and yes, I have a degree in that, but that's about it, so. What would you say was the moment that, like, worked for you in in yours? In mine? Yeah. Um, I think it's you up on the counter with your mom watching her cook. I wish, I mean, if we had had more time, I would have played with that a little bit more. What was she making? Did you get your hands dirty? Were you, when did, how old were you when you could use a knife? That kind of thing, but, but I like, I like thinking of you up there and watching. It's a great image. And you also got a moment of surprise later. The raw chicken. Yeah, the raw chicken. Was, <laughs> that was a surprise. <laughs> yeah, when we talked about it, I asked whether, um, whether she dreams of food or has food nightmares. Yeah. Um, I actually want to do a whole series on people's work nightmares because we all have them. And every time yeah. I ask somebody that question, I mean, it's a painful thing to bring up, but, but everybody has a great work nightmare story. Mm. Um, everybody. Do you write out your questions or did you write out topics? Topics. I, I wrote full questions knowing, but then with, like, squares around, like, the actual points I wanted to hit. And is that how you normally do it? Uh, yeah, it depend, depends on the interviewer. If, I, if I'm on their team, as a way to put it, um, you, then yes, because then you can just, like, have a chat. But if, the, if it's someone that I really need to, like, poke at, um, then I might write full questions. And then you'll read them. Yeah. yeah. And what about you, guys? Did you? Um, I have notes. Are, Would you hold them up? Because they're very sketchy. They're like it's like seven <laughs> words for your first interview. food memory. How learn to cook? Um, microbiology influence food? Question mark. Food dreams, nightmares, and then I was going to talk a little bit more if we had time about sort of whether Indian food purists challenge you about sorry, um, sort of bringing other aspects into your food. But we didn't get there. We're in, yeah, that's, that's sort of how I do it. I think very few people can actually read a question and make it sound like they're not reading a question. Yeah. Um, I can't, uh, so I try not to do that as much as I can. Yeah. can I, did you have a question that you're like, oh, that'll end it? Well, I was think, thinking food dreams would probably end it, and that's right. where we ended up. And then there were some sort of extras. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Amanda, do you write out your question? I did, yeah. I, write out, I wrote it out, but I knew it, so I didn't read it. But yeah. you, did you follow the questions, the order that you... I, I think I actually did. I did follow the order, and I always have, like, 
I feel like uh, if I'm trying to do narrative stuff, which I, I didn't know which way we would go, like if we would be like a quick interview where I ask and she responds, which is kind of what happened, I'd sort of hoped that I would be, I'd just land in one story and we'd tell like one seven minute story together. Mm. And if I was doing that, I wouldn't have written that down because then it would have been like, well, what happened next? That would have been basically in almost every question. So I did, I kind of stuck with my questions in the order that they were. And especially the more thoughtful things where I like wanted her to think about it, I had written that fully out and didn't read it, but knew what I was going to ask. And how often do you bring something for... You brought Play-Doh. I brought Play-Doh, Play which me. I never asked about again. And you were like, I don't know, did you, did you do anything with it? No, I think I left the bag down there, or I left it in the... In, you can leave the, with it if you'd like. Okay, thank you. The, uh, you're welcome. That's from us. Um, I think I uh, uh, talked to Tim Howard, who does Reply All, mm-hmm. and we were talking about interviewing, and I was saying that some of my favorite interviews happen in cars. And he was like, well, why is that? And I was like, well, I guess the part... Because there's part of your brain that's driving... And maybe that's the part of the brain that's like a little bit distracted. And so I think sometimes when you're sitting across from someone, you're thinking about your teeth and your face and them and whatever. And so if you can distract a little bit of the brain, that that might help the interview. And so he was like, oh, yeah, we tried a Rubik's Cube, but then you could hear it in the studio. Hmm. So then we were like, oh, well, let's try Play-Doh because that's quiet. And is that what they did? Then we, just, oh. then we did this like two weeks ago. We had this conversation. So this is my first attempt to bring Play-Doh. <laughs> I'm going to call it a failure, but I'm going to no. try it again. But I'm going to try no, it again. No. It's not Although the last it wouldn't act. be something you could do on the phone. It wouldn't, you wouldn't need it on the phone. Well, well, yours were sort of recreating a phone call. Yeah, yeah. You could, it would be helpful because I feel like on the phone, the risk is that the person starts Googling stuff. or like right. Checking the right. yeah, like right. Yeah, it gets super distracted. I mean, I like the phone because I don't want to deal with all the physical stuff. I like it better probably to be on the phone. But You ideally like to interview people on the phone. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like both, but like, I think at the end of the day, it's nice to not worry about what's going on. Like, yeah. Huh. What about you, Melissa? No, I like I like seeing somebody. I think you can pick up a lot of verbal, a uh, lot of visual cues that way. You can see how they're responding to things. You can pick up probably a little bit earlier if they're getting tense about something, and maybe you want to figure out a different line of questioning. Terry Gross does not like doing interviews in person. Notoriously doesn't like doing interviews in person. Prefers to have people at a remote studio, probably often here at NYC. Yeah, right. Um, and that works for her. But I definitely find that I make much more of a connection with people almost all the time if we're in the same room. Mm. What questions do you have? <coughs> yeah. I'm not sure I would call the play a failure. It was different, but you got her to answer something that I don't think she'd ever thought about, which was uh, uh, games as a child. I, you, yeah. I, I thought that was kind of... I, I'm not, I don't mean to speak for all the audience, but we're sitting here thinking... What, what did you play with as a child? I mean, that was fascinating. Because you just see American kids with like a million toys. toys and so yeah, the, yeah. to I eliminate that, that from the yeah. picture was yeah. kind of intense. Like I, right, yeah. right. And you wouldn't have gotten there but for Play-Doh. Right. So Thank not you. a failure. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Anne? One thing that I noticed is that like, you know, sometimes there is the story that everybody has to answer, but because it's a really great story, and so what is a strategy when you know that there's something that you want to ask somebody that they talk about a lot, and so you, you do want them to tell that story, but you want them to say it in maybe an interesting way? Or Because I feel like after a while there was a bit of fatigue about like going back to the childhood you know, and things like that. But you know, I think about that all the time. It's like, oh, we want them to always say something new and different, but like, not always. You want them to tell the story that's really good. And so what's your way of getting them to tell that story without feeling like you're getting the same road answer? It doesn't even matter. Like, you just kind of still want that story. I think one tactic you can do is be really specific. Not that I did this at all. Um, 
but uh, to, to say, like, tell me a specific thing. So if it is a childhood, then it would be like, tell me about the, the games you played as a child or, like, tell me about your very first memory. So it's like a specific thing that represents something bigger. So you're getting at it, but you're not just getting the, I grew up in 1922 or whatever. amazing story right. that they tell all the time and you still kind of want that amazing story but you're trying to figure out a way that maybe you can get something a little bit different right. from I it. I mean I guess you know without knowing the specifics of it I guess I would say that I always err on the side of transparency so I would rather not ask a question hoping that they would just drop that amazing story and you could act surprised like you'd never heard it before so I would probably do something like I've read that you watched your brother choke on a popsicle when he was six and then try to, you know, sort of set up the story that they're about to hear and then figure out what it is about that story that, is, that I want them to tell or what, that I haven't heard before, if that makes sense. But, I, yeah, I, you know. And the worst thing sometimes, you know, I've had you know, producers in my ear saying, you know, get him to talk about that thing. Where the, and you, you can't force it that way. It can be really hard, and I think... I think the people you're interviewing can pick up on that in a lot of ways. So I would just say my advice would be to try to be honest about where you're going and if there's something specific that you want, just to lead into that, maybe in a, in a slightly more direct way. is Preetha, and I'm really brand new to all of this, so I'm going to ask you to dig back, or not to apply that you're old, uh, in time to when you first started out, and like, how did you, how did you learn not to let your interviewee run away with the interview? Not that that happened here today, this was all very lovely. But my experience is, like, I'm really bad at interviewing because I don't quite know how yet to guide the person to where the story could be, you know? So I just sort of allow myself to get bullied by the language and, and the stories and the anecdotes, and they're excellent. I'm laughing, but it's not the story, you know? That is, is that, that's my question. Do you want to start? Uh, I, I mean, it depends on the interview, whether it's a live interview or you're going to be editing it later. Um, if you want to be super polite, sometimes you can say, let's get to that later. For now, let's focus on this. And like a really, like, let's focus on this because I'm so excited to hear about this. Um, and then in your mind, you're like, we're never getting to that later. But they don't know that. And, and by the time they've like, told you this other story, they've completely forgotten about their other thing. Because ultimately, I have the same problem as well. But ultimately, just keep in your mind you're wasting everyone's time if they're talking to you for five hours about something you're never going to use. And just kind of keep that, that like, you're not helping anyone. Because ultimately, like, they're, they're with you because they want to help you or they want to tell something. And so if it doesn't help anyone if you just, like, let them go wild. So, but, so I would, I would be, feel okay about, like, you know, helping their ego, but then just being, like, shifting, shifting gears. Yeah, I think, I mean, you are so... You are the person who has to set the tone and everything. So, obviously, they never hold the gear. If you want them to be funny, you be funny. If you want them to be comfortable... Like, I, for me, I spend, like, a lot of time at the beginning trying to find, like, a place where we are where we know the same thing like for you I, I didn't bring up Canada but I probably would have knowing that you spent some time there that would have been where I would have gone to get the like a little bit of rapport right at the beginning 
And then I think I've gotten very transparent, which only recently, which I feel like I've just learned, which is like, this is why I'm here and this is what I'm doing and this is what I need from you. And when they start to like veer off, you're just like, I, you know, that's great, but like, I really need, I'm really looking for this today and this is what I came here to get. So I guess it's, it's like, I, I, I used to work for David Brancaccio for a little while and he would have to do, go in and do these like 10 minute interviews. You know, you go in, you meet a leader, you get 10 minutes, you got to get something. And so he would stand incredibly close to them with his microphone and do one of these and he would talk fast and he'd be kind of up in their face and they would respond in kind. So they would do the same thing back. You'd get these like really pithy little short 10 minute interviews. And so I think that's, that's where the Play-Doh comes in. I really think about like, are we sitting? Are we standing? How long do I have? What do I need? And then I tell people what I want. And then sometimes I ask people now like why they're doing the interview and I, I actually think it's kind of interesting to know why they're there and what their motivation is because that sort of helps you get what you want too. If that helps. And if it's any consolation, I think probably all of I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and I think we all have interviews that still run away from us, so don't feel like you're failing just because that happens. It happens. And you can always blame the guest. It's not your fault. <laughs> um, I mean, a few things. Uh, and again, it obviously depends on the kind of interview you're doing. Sometimes, I mean, letting an interview run somewhat away from you is not a bad thing. Often, you know, if you give somebody a bit of leash... The first three things they may tell you are what they've told everybody before, but if you let them run with it a little bit, then that fourth thing might be something that's really surprising, and you can wait for that and not be too impatient. Um, so obviously there are different levels of losing control of an interview. Um, another thing might be, you know, if, if they're sort of running on and on in one answer, if you are able to take notes as you're doing it, say, you know, you've raised a bunch of different things here that are all interesting and I want to focus on, on one of the things or follow up on one of the things you raised, which is sort of like what, what we mentioned earlier. But, but don't feel like you are failing and not destined to do what you want to do because it happens to all of us. Is there one last question? Yeah? Melissa, you didn't ever drop eye contact the whole time. You were looking directly at the interviewee. Hmm. Um, I produce for a live show, but I also host my own podcast, and I find it really hard to not give verbal cues, especially when the person isn't in front of you. Um, So I'd love for each of you to talk a bit about how you cue your interviewee into feeling like you're there with them and you're encouraging them to keep going. What do you mean? Like cue, like, uh uh-huh, that kind of thing? No. Or like, "Mm, mm -hmm." mm-hmm. Oh, you mean if they're not in the same space with you? Both. I mean, so if they are in the same space, what do you do to stay with them? And if they aren't, how do you make sure they know that they're being listened to without giving verbal cues? Or do you think verbal cues are okay in radio sometimes, even if they can get kind of annoying if the host does them too much? I guess I think the more you're thinking about it, the less natural it's going to sound. (laughs) So I I get your point of sort of wanting to feel engaged in a conversation. I think... I think you naturally respond to things in a way. It's obviously is the technical part. If, if you're doing an interview that is just going to be their voice and not yours, obviously you have to be mindful of not stepping on them and saying stuff that you don't want to be on the air. If it's an interview that's running as an interview on a podcast or something, I, I would say your responses to things, so long as they're not intrusive or jumping all over the person who's saying something, are really helpful and show that you're a human being and that you're responding as any other listener might respond, with surprise or with joy or shock or whatever it might be. Does that help? Okay. Should we stick there? Is that, uh, if you have something to say, we have to have to wrap up. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit the difference between producing and being in the interview. So I feel like I produced for so long that I probably had like 800 faces that were like, 
Like, <laughs> like and, they, and never make a sound. Like, I still, and I, I just did an interview yesterday, and I fell back into that. And I, they were saying stuff, and I was like, like, I, I don't know what I did, but like, I, these, like, so I wouldn't make a sound. And then I was like, no, I'm, I get to be in this if I want to. And it sounds better if I'm in it, like if, we're re- if you're hearing us do back and forth. And now I, I'm more likely to risk stepping on something and just hoping it works than not say something at all. Do you so. find you're doing that in real life, too, where you're just fake laughing or fake shock? You know, like <laughs> silent, sh- silent shock with your, I hope not. your, your friends and family. Probably, maybe. <laughs> no way to know. Let's give a good warm welcome. Thank you to our people. I thought you all. That was Amanda Aronchik, Wendy Zuckerman, Melissa Block, Emily Botin and Anita Jussing-Honey speaking at the 2016 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Harnish Foundation 